episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Hi, everybody. This is Slayhouse Presents, and I'm Jeremy with you as always. Uh, Curtis is with me today, and today we are very happy to present to you a wonderful interview or an interview we hope is wonderful with a wonderful guest, a wonderful author, an award winning author. Um, and a Bram Stoker nominated awarded author for uh, some is it uh, for Into the Woods and and all the way through um, and the author of Children of Chicago, the big book out now, and you've got a sequel coming out for that soon. So we're welcoming Cena Palayo today to our to our show. So welcome, Cena. How are you? Hi, everyone. I'm good. I, um, I, I was up late until like it sounds crazy. I was up until like 5, 6 a.m. editing, so I oh, am wow. very tired, but I have coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it, I is, would... it is the life of a writer that works full time. You, know, you have to cram everything in on the weekends. I understand completely. I, I feel like I am doing that as well. I wasn't up quite as late as you editing and working on stuff. I just, I have a story I'm working on and I can't seem to get it like going right. And I get frustrated, but, um, but yeah. I, hats off to you for yeah. like staying up all those hours to get it done. <laughs> These stories don't behave sometimes. And you're like, can you please behave? And that's exactly what I was dealing with. All of last night. <laughs> exactly. So I understand. Um, so can you tell, uh, I thought we'd get started with just kind of telling people how you got kind of into writing, what's your journey into to being a, becoming a novelist and becoming an author has been like? Well, um, it's <laughs> been a long journey. Um, I, I still feel very new and I, I think I am still very new, but I started writing I started writing like in high school, writing, um, I was a journal, doing journalism, writing articles and essays. And I started, so I was published as early as high school doing essays and in magazines and whatnot. Um, I went to like undergrad for journalism and I'm so old that the degree that I have in journalism no longer exists. News, re news reporting and writing. So I trained to be like an old school newspaper reporter. And that's what I wrote for community newspapers in Chicago um, a long time ago. So I covered community news. I covered arts and entertainment. I covered crime and it became too much like emotionally to continue covering crime. And so I, I had to stop. Um, but I didn't want to stop writing. And so I was like, well, what if I explore fiction writing? And this is like in 2008. So I went and I got a master's of fine arts at the school of the art Institute of Chicago, where they had no idea what to do with me because they're like, we only work with fiction writers, but you're a journalist. And I was like, well, I want to learn. That's why I'm here. And I had no idea what type of writer I was. And as I kept, and they didn't know who to pair me with. So they paired me with um, a novelist uh, and a playwright. And as I was writing through things, they were like, you're a horror writer who doesn't know they're a horror writer. <laughs> um, and they were like, you just have to go full on and embrace it because the themes and the topics that you're covering, this is horror. Um, and so I published um i self-published a short story collection like in 2010 i had two young adult horror novels published with postmortem press who um is no longer around um, i've worked with like raw dog screaming press with poetry i moved into i've done a combination of like uh self-publishing um indie publishers throughout my career um and so i think i'm at I think I lost count. I probably, I, I've probably written over 10 books by now, uh, oh, wow. published, I think like around seven, uh, including poetry. So it's been, it's been a long time. So it started about 2008. So I am here now and I have like three books coming out in the next five months, which is a little insane. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is very impressive. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about because, um, we love, I've always, I've always loved and admired writers who can switch mediums like that from like, say, journalism to poetry to fiction. Um, so how does switching through the different mediums like that, how does that let you kind of tackle these various themes that you're, you're kind of trying to, to address? I really enjoy it. It's for me. And I know, like, I know some people who write novels can't write short stories and they're like, I, I have a friend who's always, who asked me, like, how do you write short stories? Like, how is this, like, how did it just 
I'm blocked in terms of like how to construct a short story, all I need to do is go back to Ray Bradbury's work and it's like it clicks or Richard Matheson. His short stories are amazing. Um, So for me, short stories have come naturally and I really enjoy writing short stories um, just because I feel like I have like this rhythm down for the way mine work. Poetry, I feel like with poetry, I can just become more focused more on the emotion that I want to convey. Mm-hmm. And that's nice. Like I, I, I always equate writing poetry to like writing music or creating music because it's very, for me, it's, it's very, a very musical process. I have to like read my poems out loud. They have to sound a certain way. The tone has to be, and the beats have to fall into a certain place. And with novels, or I look at it as a massive math problem because you have all of these events, so all of this logic, and that all has to add up to the end. And all of you keep, you present all of the little items, and if they all don't connect, then your math problem isn't solved. So novels are much more, at least for me, they take me a little bit more time to plan in the beginning. And I used to not out. <laughs> It was a mess. I used to not outline. I would just write straight through, but I write complex novels where I have multiple themes running throughout. And I just had to force myself to write. I write a very detailed outline in Excel. It's very detailed. And now I write like a very short draft and then I go in like a skeleton and then I go in and shape it through. So. So for me, fun, like, so for me, going to short stories, it's like fun. I can jump into a short story and it's super easy. For me, poetry, it's, it's just this beautiful exercise. But novels, it's like, this is work. <laughs> we're going to sit down <laughs> and we're going to really just think this through and it needs to all make sense. I, um, I, I, that's fascinating. I agree. I, you know, I tried to get through, um, like I said, in my email to you last night, um, Trevor had the copy I wanted to get, and I'm going to get a copy of Into the Forest and all the way through. It's just, I couldn't get one before our interview. So he let me borrow his and I'm trying to read these poems and they are so hard to get through because they are dealing with like real life cases. And they're so, that's a lot of weight. And as a reader, I'm feeling that as I'm reading it. And I had to back away from the book a few times just to, to kind of, deal with the imagery that you present. And so how was that like from a reader standpoint, I know it's difficult to kind of ingest that because it is based on, on real life cases. How was that writing that? Like, how did that how, emotionally, how did that affect you? Um, I would be lying if I say it, it didn't affect me. It was very, uh, I, because of into the forest and all the way through, I can no longer consume true crime. And mm. I used to consume, I loved it sounds so like <laughs> it sounds so like inappropriate in a way, right? It sounds like so sick. I loved true crime, but I did. I like I would sit here making my children's dinner or like just sitting with them at night and like listening to like this gruesome true crime event unfold in my head and I would watch the true crime documentaries and I would read the true crime books. I'd like would just love reading the true crime books. And I started getting to a point where like I started um, reading more of like the, the victim's family stories. And as my children grew older, I started thinking like, you know, about these people's parents, like how do they feel that their child's murder has become spectacle? That, and so that, that is really where the idea kind of took me into, into the force and all the way through. And then all of the, like the overabundance of Ted Bundy, um, programming that we saw like recently and now we're going into Jeffrey Dahmer but that really just horrified me and so I wanted to do something from the victim's perspective to indicate how awful it was what happened to them and so I wrote some of the poems are written from the victim perspective some from the detective perspective some from the family's perspective um a lot of these women it was uh, over a hundred women I wrote about a lot of them. We just don't know what happened to them. And so a lot of research went into it. A lot of, uh, emotional anguish because for me, I would spend what I would do my approach. I would, I would take one case and I would consume as much as I could about the case until I was like, 
overwhelmed and then I would sit and write the poem. So I really wrote it from like this high emotional state, each and every poem. And for me, some of these cases, I would review them and it's like, well, the, to me, it's obvious who the murderer was or the culprit is, but there were just so many things involved that some of these people got away with what they did. Wow. Um, but it was very difficult to write. And so I just, I know people, people have really enjoyed my true crime. I just don't know if I can emotionally write true crime. So I think for now, I'm just saying I'm not revisiting true crime. I might write, I'll write crime fiction, but in terms of it being connected to a true case, I just don't think I can do that right now. I totally understand that. That, especially when you were saying earlier about how, um, you know, you were just worn out of being on the, the true crime beat. And, you know, we all know, at least, I, I think I told you in an early email that, you know, my wife is from Chicago. She's from Canaryville. So we've been up to the city a bunch of times. And um, there's a lot of of understanding like that. That's not a super safe city. It's that's uh, it's it's got some good areas to it, but it's got a lot of areas that you know not to go into. And. So I imagine that you experienced a lot of horrendous things as a true crime reporter in that city. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, gosh, it was, uh, I mean, it was hard. I, I would spend, you know, I would spend the night out with, um, with homeless youth. Uh, I remember one, you know, and they would talk to me about the things that they encountered. And it was just heartbreaking, uh, you know some of the stories and things that they had to do to survive and how they were abused out there. Um, I've seen, you know, young, young people, young, young, young people dead on the street <clears throat> because of shootings and, and whatnot. And so I've seen, I've seen quite a lot. And even just growing up, I grew up in the, I, I still live in the same neighborhood I grew up in, um, I, in the Northwest side of Chicago. And it's changed a lot. Like people, people look at Wicker Park and they're like, "Oh, this is really cool, like bohemian artists neighborhood." I was like, "Yeah, Wicker Park in the '80s and '90s was not that. <laughs> it was not that. Uh, this, even Logan Square, like Logan Square, is like the it neighborhood right now. It was not that growing up. There were, you know, I was a. Uh, it was interesting. <laughs> there was a lot of things that I mean, I like I said, I grew up here, um, and. I'm from Chicago. Uh, I mean, I, I'm from Puerto Rico. I was born in Puerto Rico, but raised here since I was two. So this is my home. Um, but it was, crime was something that we lived with. Crime was, you don't go outside. You're careful who you talk to. I mean, I've almost been kidnapped and pushed into a car. I was almost, I was practically pushed into a car wow. on the west side of Chicago once. Um, I, I've, I've had friends who were murdered I've had friends who murdered people out of situations. It's it was a very scary time, and and I and I know that still exists, and there's beauty here, but there there's definitely issues here. There's like the socioeconomic factors. There's like people that there's whole blocks that are like the homes are dilapidated and abandoned, and um, there's. Uh, economic disinvestment in some communities and that definitely creates a slew of issues that I've seen um, with young people just these beautiful young people and it's been sad I remember you know Cabrini, Cabrini Green's long gone but I used to tutor kids at Cabrini Green way oh, back wow. and these were like some of my best kids were the kids at Cabrini Green they were just the sweetest kids and I remember one of them I uh, was applying for a job at McDonald's and he came to me and he's like, can I use your address for my application? And I was like, why? He's like, they won't hire me if I put, I work at, I live at Cabrini Green. I was like, oh my God. Like I was just like heartbroken. I was like, yeah, use my address. I don't care. Um, but that's the reality that many of them lived with, is, you know, a slew of issues, but they were, um, and it affected young people and it affects young people. Um, at least them, I mean, of course, older people as well, but I just, which is why I wrote Children of Chicago. Just that was my, my way of processing all of the things I saw young people deal with. Yeah, you, you definitely make, um, I mean, I see these themes as you talk about them. I see them in your works. I see them, you know, I saw that in Children of Chicago. Um, 
that was an amazing, I really enjoyed that, that read. That was an amazing book. Um, and it felt like the city of Chicago itself was a character in there. Um, it, it's, <laughs> <Thank> and it's, <laughs> um, so I guess, let me see. I'm, I'm always, I always get lost. I, Trevor usually does our, our interviews. So I feel like I'm like trying to step into his shoes and it's, he is very small feet. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so why do, so it's obvious these themes resonate with you because, um, because you're from the city, but do they, do you feel like they have, uh, that other kind of connection with you? Like, um, uh, how am I trying to say this? Like, I'm, I'm really kind of lost. <laughs> um, these themes, like these particular themes of like, like the loss of innocence, I mean, obviously resonate with you because like you've worked with children. Um, the the themes of like corruptibility and like the the systemic kind of corruption that you've seen how does that like I, i've noticed that throughout some of your work too like um do you care to talk about like how that resonates with you some or yeah i mean it's interesting i um i think a lot of the commentary i i try to make is that a lot of the people we think are there to protect us don't and they haven't protected us the way we should be protected and there's this i i i often say like we're we're out here on our own and we have to protect ourselves because ultimately it's like there's um there's situations that just show us that we're really the only ones that kind of have to take care of one one another, like ourselves, just because, you know, the people in positions of power, um, positions of authority aren't always thinking with our best interests in mind and our safety in mind. And so those are type, the types of commentary that I'm trying to make. And it's a little scary to think that like, we're, we're here on our, we're on our own, you know, you see people doing these very scary things in public and hurting one another in public. And how long does it take for help to come? That alone is terrifying to think about. Like you can just be sitting in this beautiful public park and someone can do something. And how long will it take for anybody to intervene? Will anybody intervene? Are you on your own? So um, those are the types of things that I'm, I've been touching on, like with Children of Chicago, that anxiety that we're kind of on our own in in many ways and it's scary to think that but that's why we have to take care of ourselves and if you're a good person please take care of each other that that that's amazing that you say that because it also resonates with me when i read um we came from an island which felt like i mean that kind of makes it feel like we not only come from the island and i know you're talking about like puerto rico and being a you know moving from puerto rico to chicago and kind of having this feeling it almost felt like you were talking about being displaced or having this kind of struggle with like fitting in um but it's almost like you're saying too that we're still in that island you know we're, we're a metaphorical island i guess so um that did that yeah. how, how much of that was autobiographical for that we came from an island like it felt very autobiographical to me a, a lot <laughs> <laughs> probably like the entire thing is probably like 80 percent biographical so it's very very it's um and I've said before, like, I don't really write, um, like, Loteria that's coming out. That was a Latin American folklore and myth short story collection I wrote quite a, over a decade ago. Um, but I've, I've said before, I don't write, um, I, I, I am a Hispanic author, I am a Latino author, but I don't write stories that deal with, like, my upbringing, um, just because uh, I feel like I did that with previous works that I'm, I'm ready to explore other things, but I thought it was important for me to compile something so that people really understood like my identity and where, I, why I am where I am today. And that was, we came from an Island and I wanted to make sure that was limited. Um, just because I figured I'm like, that was kind of like a treat for my close readers. Like this is, this is what I am. This is where the types of things that I've encountered and seen and, I tried to also make it as fantastical uh, and as, as, as parts and, and blur it. So you, people question well, what is real and what didn't happen, but much of that happened. Oh, wow. um, but uh, it, uh, it, it, it was 
just this commentary of feeling that I exist in like this another another room, like you know, never really understanding what home is and what my identity is, and so just I mean, so many people kind of identify with that, right? Like many people who have you know left their homes. Um, it's like there's never, at least for us, we can't really ever go back. Um, yeah. I can't ever really go back to to, to the island, given uh, given you know a multitude of, of issues dealing with climate there. So yeah, the that yeah the island's been hit a couple of times uh, past couple of hurricanes, haven't it? Um, yeah, pretty pretty do you, hard. Do you still talk to family there? Do you still are they okay? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we still have a lot of family there and none of them want to leave. They were just like, this is home and we're not leaving and we're fine and everything is wet, but we're okay. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, I haven't been back since before the pandemic um, because every time I try to start planning to go back, something happens. Um, but I, I would like to spend, I think my goal one day would be to spend like a longer amount of time there. But um, I haven't been back. But everybody's safe in my family, so that's nice. But it 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 is. I imagine this just must be like this constant level of stress and anxiety because there's just a slew of issues with power outages and then the hurricanes. It's it's difficult to live in that that condition. I um I absolutely love the personal nature of that. We came from an island, and and seeing that Trevor has a signed limited edition copy of it, I like. I really wanted to like steal it from him. Like I just want. <laughs> yeah, thank you for picking it up. Yeah, of course. But, uh, I, yeah, I I want to go through. I'm going to go through and I'm going to get more uh, things. I think I picked up your Children of Chicago when we were at Stoker Con, and then we were doing the author signing, and so Trevor went over and got you to sign it for me. So, um, I enjoyed it. My wife read it. She enjoyed it. And like I said, she's from Chicago also, so she's like identifying like as she's reading it, and and I can't Mark wait for the sequel. So you've got yeah. the sequel coming out soon, right? Yes, and I. It's funny because it's not a direct sequel, but you will find out what happens to Lauren. She does appear in the book, Lauren Medina. Um, I didn't want to spoil anything, but I wanted to ask, like, do we get to learn what happens to her? Yes, you will find out what happens to Lauren Medina, and that's very exciting. Um, (laughs) But it's a new cast of characters, new detective, um, some recurring characters, but it's still the same shared universe, and they do reference what happened last year, but there is a new case. Um, it deals with the historic movie palaces in Chicago and Chicago's history as a silent film capital. Like, Chicago was Hollywood before there was, like, a proper Hollywood. Oh, wow. You know, we, we had full um, movie studios on, um, up north, by like right by where Lane Tech High School is. And Charlie Chaplin worked here. Charlie Chaplin filmed several movies here for 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 a short time. So Charlie Chaplin is mentioned in the book quite a bit. And uh, there is a horror host. And if we're familiar, I know many of us might be familiar with like a certain horror host. It's not that horror host, but I do. <laughs> um, I do. Uh, it does deal with the horror host and historic movie palaces, and uh, you know, like the like the Chicago Theater or, and others. So. So you, you really kind of sounds like you play with kind of the mythology and the, the history of Chicago and and all of that. It's such a strange town. And I'm always fascinated <laughs> that there hasn't been. And that's I, I think that's definitely like my it is definitely my interest as an author to continue exploring Chicago and its history. But I'm always so fascinated that there hasn't been like this extensive treatment of the city and all of these strange things that have happened here. You have everything from like the Fort Dearborn, you know, massacre, which was like this huge event to the Chicago fire to like the, the levy district. Um, so like our overabundance of like serial killers and operating in this area. It's like, we know that John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer were operating in this area around the same time. They, they, yeah. We don't know, but it's possible they could have even known one another. And of course, H. H. Holmes and the murder cast. I was just about to ask you about him. <laughs> That's one I, I, I think people need to. I, I don't think people would believe it if they knew more about H. H. Holmes and all that that went down with that. It's insane. Like when you look at like when you just start really reading through like what happened. Um, 
that it went on. Well, I'm not surprised that it went on for so long because the the types of people he was preying on were people that. I mean, it was a different time. There was no way to like really get in touch with family quickly. So it is very, very interesting. And just like our history with like organized crime, our history with organized crime <laughs> alone. It's uh, I mean, if you grew up in Chicago, I mean, now it's different. If you, but I, you know, I remember. You know, everybody knew somebody in the mob. <laughs> like everybody, <laughs> everybody knew someone in the mob that worked with the mob that did a run for the mob. I was just like, I just remember like this, and like I had friends' dads that worked at the horse track, and we were like, okay, <laughs> what are you doing at the horse? You know, it, it was a thing like back in the eighties. It was a not widely discussed thing, but there was the whole mob element was still very embedded throughout Chicago's culture and everybody knew somebody that was involved. <laughs> and now the mob's been replaced with like street gangs and like, yeah, it's street gangs. Yeah. And so it's like, you had Al Capone and the North side and the South side gang. And you read about that. And these people, like they would just shoot out in the open, like Al Capone <laughs> and the North side. And I mean, you look at um, the cathedral downtown, there's still like bullet holes from where Al Capone and his there was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, their, uh, their, their fights or whatnot, but we still have that history that we still have. It's, it's my commentary with children of Chicago, that history continues to repeat itself because we're not really tackling the issues. And, you know, we have organized crime from Al Capone way back and it's still here today, the way we have, um, the street gangs. It's, it's interesting. So do you hope that your, um, your writing helps present some of these uh, like ideas and these issues to the, the public kind of present it in a new light, maybe get people to take action. Is that something that you'd like to see with it or. I would love for action to be taken, of course. Um, with some of these things, I think I've always said, I don't know what the right thing. What I don't know what the right and like, I, I've always said, I, I can present questions. I feel like I'm really good at asking questions and presenting these things. I don't know if I'm the right person to say these are the answers because some of these issues are just so complex yeah. um, and historical. So, but I do want to present that there are issues. I mean, it's a beautiful city. It's without a doubt. Like you go back to... Daniel Burnham and the plan of Chicago and the way he just mapped this city. You look at L. Frank Baum. He wrote Wizard of Oz here. It's a city that's completely full of, like, we're a city on a lake. Like, what other city has this gorgeous lakefront that's public property? You see, you have other areas. Like, I'm, and I'm not really familiar with California, but my understanding is it's all, like, private property that takes up, like, the the, the, the waterfront here. Anyone can go down and just enjoy the lake. That's the way the city was built was for the people to really enjoy it. And it makes it like such a beautiful space to exist in. But then we have crime. <laughs> we have crime for like a multitude of reasons um, that are very complex. I could go back to like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of the things I think I remarked to you about in an, in an early email was just how wonderful it is to me it's it's kind of um you know a lot of these places i feel like when you go people want to talk about their hometowns and like gloss over like all the problems and oh it's so perfect here but chicago it feels like to me i mean like everyone who's from there's like they love the city but they see the the problems with the city like does that make sense yeah i mean there, of course there are neighborhoods that probably don't experience like literally before i got on this podcast with you all i had to like shout out my window because there was like five men in my alley and they were like drinking and singing and i was like can you all go please <laughs> so i mean there's always something there's always something strange happening um it's a city it's a city but um it's uh there's i'm sure there's i mean there is a lot of wealth here. There's neighborhoods that are very wealthy. I mean, there's parts of, of the city that multiple homes have been torn down so that mega mansions can be built. And there's there's neighborhoods that have hired their own private security firm because they're so affluent and they don't 
want to depend on the police alone. And so they've gotten together as a community and they've created for their own private security. So there's, there is some in, 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 intense wealth in the city. But then there's whole neighborhoods that don't even have a grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. And so you drive through some of these communities and you're just like, boarded up windows, dilapidated houses, no grocery stores. And you're like, what is going on? But then you could drive like 10, 15 minutes north and it's like there's shops and businesses everywhere. And so it's definitely, it's definitely visible. The, the differences, the socioeconomic differences, you can take a drive through the city of Chicago and just kind of go up and down Western or, you know, up and down Cicero and see the differences. Yeah. I, I think I've told uh, people who aren't familiar with it. I said, you know, I've been to a number of cities and is, and I love Chicago too. I mean, I've kind of inherited that from my wife, but um, I tell them, I said, Chicago to me feels like a very segregated city. Like you can see the different neighborhoods and different. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, because in children of Chicago, you really tackle this idea of the myth and of the Pied Piper and um, which is a very interesting kind of spooky fairy tale in and of itself. What um, do you think fairy tales have to offer modern readers today? Like why did that draw you in to want to incorporate that into your story? I, I start, I studied fairy tales in my MFA. Um, I, th- th- they were the first stories that, I mean, so many children are read. And those were the first stories that um, I was exposed to. And I took a class specifically on Grimm's fairy tales with my graduate advisor. And I remember, and we were reading the original like Grimm's fairy tales. And I remember how like grim and gory so many of these were. And as part of our coursework, we had to like read each of these 400 plus fairy tales twice. And we had to adapt multiple of them. So we were really like embedded in these fairy tales. and. I identify and I continue just studying them and working on my thesis on fairy tales. And I think what's interesting about them is that they can show us beauty and cruelty and magic as well. And especially as adults, like once we become adults, like what's magical anymore, right? You know, it's like everything, you know, you know, what's the most magical event that can happen to you as an adult? I mean, maybe like, a new puppy, children, you know, there's very few, there's very few things that just feel like one, like you feel like this sense of wonder in your adult life. But then if you present a fairy tale in a narrative, you're able to tap back into that childhood wonderment. And then you can also like highlight how gruesome some of these things are, like the cruelty. And I, and I think we see that as adults. And so so I try to take the fantastical, and my work especially, um, I try to take the real world issues and make a commentary with it through way of the fantastical. And that tends to be fairy tales, which I, I, I do feel like I'll kind of be working in fairy tales for a little bit longer. Um, I adapted another fairy tale recently that uh, my agent is shopping. So um and the next like two books I'm working on are deal with fairy tale, a fairy tale that I'm adapting as well. Oh, cool. Uh, does the sequel to children of Chicago, is it staying within the same fairy tale or is it tackling something new or can you actually, tell me, do you want to talk? <laughs> yeah, actually that one tackles fables, Aesop's fables. Oh. Um, yeah. Like the, I thought, so, um, what can I say without saying too much? I, I wanted so fables are interesting because they're a morality tale and they all deal with animals. All fables deal with animals. And I was like, well, how can I write a novel that deals with animals? So all of the characters have something to do with an animal. Um, And there is a moral of the story that I, that the shoemaker's magician has a moral of the story at the very end. Um, But it does deal with Aesop's fables. So like, um, the goose that laid the golden egg and whatnot all, all those fables i thought were interesting so it doesn't it's not a fair it's not a fairy tale but it's a fable so it's a morality tale so looking at um like what you're saying with like fables and with with uh fairy tales and stuff do you think um that is like the power of art or what how would you say the power of art in society in our society like what what would you say the um 
responsibility yeah. art, art has in our society? Or, or does yeah. it? <laughs> I'll talk about responsibility in a sec, but um, in terms of art, I think I think the artist like operates in this very cool, like shadowy space that the artist's loyalty should only be to the art. And that I feel like the artist occupies like this, you know, in between space, like because your 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 job is to observe society or just to observe an observer um and from there when you create it is not your job to think about how your creation is going to be interpreted because then that just misses the entire point you have to create you have to create the piece of art that is true to what your 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 goal is and i mean art has like a variety of um uh a way that can influence people or just a way it can be interpreted. So there's, you know, the educational aspect, there's entertainment, how art can be used to manipulate and influence. We've seen that. Um, there's also like social impact and social change. And I think ultimately the artist is an individual that has power. If you can create art, you are creating something that's powerful because art has the power to make someone feel, to think, to have a physiological response. Like, you know, you, you can literally sit down and write something, film something with your phone and make, and it could cause someone to laugh or cry. That's pretty amazing. So art is power, art is like magic and you're the magician, you're an alchemist if you can create art. Um, but I do not think course you put yourself in a lot of sticky situations as an artist if you're creating something that will that you know will do harm um and if you do something like that i think you have to be prepared for the discussion um if, if an artist creates harmful work and there are artists that create harmful work but i think ultimately the artist's responsibility is always to the art do you, uh, and, and given that, and that being said, do you still think about like what you hope your readers take from, from what it is that you're producing? Oh, I, oh gosh, I, with the Shoemaker's Magician, it was hard. I kind of froze up for like three months and I wasn't able to write just because the, there was a harsh response from some people regarding Children of Chicago, which I understand. It's there's difficult themes there um, with commentary and authority and, and whatnot. So I kind of was frozen for a little bit and I was scared to write The Shoemaker's Magician because I was scared of the response. And I just remember, and I really struggled with, I really had a moment where I was struggling with myself as a, a writer. I was struggling with myself, like, can I write again? Uh, and I really had to separate myself from the response to my work. So I don't read reviews anymore. I do not. <laughs> I do. I, I avoid everything that has to do with any commentary about my work because everyone's going to have an opinion and people have the right to have their opinion. But just because someone says that your work is flawed, that doesn't mean your work is flawed. You're the artist. The, the artist is never flawed. Everybody's going to, everyone's going to put their own experiences into the work that they're engaging with. And I'm a Chicagoan. I know what it's like to live here. <laughs> I know what it's like to experience the city. Um, so I think ultimately I can't tell anyone how to feel, how to, I can't tell anybody to like my work. I can't tell anybody to like me. Um, so I learned to like disengage completely from that ignore reviews, ignore commentary so that I could write because it, when I was tapped into that, I wasn't able to write because then I was worried about how people would think about my work. And that's not what we want to do. Um, and that's one of the things I think you did really well, especially with like children of Chicago. I mean, you don't give, um, 
like you, you're some of your main characters are in the police department and I don't feel like you romanticize like the police department. It's not like say like the law and order franchise where they're always the good guys. I, I felt like these were very real characters. So was that something that was important to you to try and present this as a more realistic kind of complex system? Yeah, I really wanted to, um, I mean, if you're a Chicagoan, you know, cops, you know, teachers, you know, you know, these, you know, blue collar workers, you know, you know, these people, you grew up with these people, they're in your family. And so I wanted to really highlight what these people are like. I know a lot of them. (laughs) Um, I wanted to highlight that they're just, they're human beings. They're not, they, human beings can do bad things. They can do good things. They can there's a variety of, you know, commentary there, but I wanted it to feel as authentic as possible. Um, and so like some of these conversations I had like flipped in there were like real conversations that I kind of remember hearing, you know, uh, snippets of, um, and just the way they talk, (laughs) the banter between them. Um, and so I wanted to really capture that and I didn't want to, I did not want to romanticize them i did not i wanted the work to be as objective as possible and i feel like when a lot of people came to it they were like oh my goodness it's a it's a you know detective novel it's you know whatnot but i just wanted it to be um i just wanted the characters to feel authentic as i as i wrote them and there you know there's some people that you're probably like oh my god they're like an awful person and there's some people that you're like well they're probably a complex person and i think that's true for a lot of people um they're good people they're bad people there's everything in between and so i just wanted to make sure i was highlighting that well there's that that old uh, cliche about how even the villain is the hero of their own story and and i feel like a lot of your characters are very complex like i don't want to give anything away but like Lauren is like very complex like yes and I mean Lauren has her own moral code which is very strange and that and I um I wanted to like really highlight that like she operates what she thinks is right and wrong may be very different from what somebody else thinks is right and wrong but there are people out there like that there are people out there that they have their own moral code and what they think is right and wrong that doesn't mean and that's another thing about the artist i think one of the i'm going to go in a little tangent one of the interesting things about writers who write dark fiction um or write complex works like this is that there's been this recent commentary about like well how much does the artist identify with these villains and these bad characters? And it's like, look, we're just, you know, we're trying to explore various states of human um, existence. And so just because that's Lauren's moral code, that doesn't mean that's my moral (laughs) code, Um, you know, and it's important for me to explore um, a variety of characters uh, from protagonists to like, you know, from, the good guy to the bad guy to the monster to everything in between so well that and and in my opinion i mean i agree with you 100 percent. i feel like that makes the even the villain more interesting if we can kind of find some kind of common ground to write them from or something that can i, I don't want to necessarily say they're sympathetic but you can kind of get into their head a little bit and kind of understand them um of course with the protagonist you want to be able to identify them but but i i feel like mm-hmm. having that complexity of character really um really draws the reader into the story. I mean, it helps keep push the story along. Yeah. I mean, everybody, I mean, sometimes we think a villain is like, can't manipulate people into having them think that they're good. There are a lot of people out there in our lives that I'm sure that at one point we thought they were a good person and we're like, Oh my God, they're a really awful person. So we've all been exposed to that, that individual that we think, is a good person and after time we're like oh wait i should probably be careful around this person so a villain isn't always going to be somebody that's like you know has, has these fangs and these claws <laughs> they, they know how to manipulate yeah the, i mean it's it's like you were mentioning earlier with john wayne gacy and jeffrey dahmer i mean they were they weren't i mean people didn't realize who they were until like a lot of people were killed so they had a lot of people fooled. Um, 
So what is this? Yeah. You, you said there's a, a, a series of, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the book coming out that, um, is a series of like, um, uh, Mexican fables or, or, or Spanish oh, uh, mythology yeah. a little bit? Yeah. So Loteria is a short story collection of 54 short stories and poems. I originally wrote it back in 2010 and it's being re-released by Polis Books. And each story, and the reason it's called Loteria is because it's a, it's a game in Mexico. It's like the Mexican bingo. Like, I guess that's the easiest way I can describe it. And each, there's 54 cards and you're supposed to like match the cards onto a game board as somebody calls out the corresponding picture. Um, and so I took each one of the 54 cards and I wrote um, a short story based off of it. So like, like the rooster card, I wrote a short story about the chupacabra. Um, and so like the death card, I wrote a story about um, there is a cemetery in Mexico that someone believe that they believe a vampire is buried beneath like one of the burial plots. So I took a short, I took a piece of like lore from, um, and I uh, attached it to each card. So I, I wrote short stories uh, dealing with like Mexican folklore, Argentinian folklore. So I kind of spread out throughout Latin America and that's being released in January. And that's more, that's an older piece of work of mine. It's more pulpy and fun uh it's there's a lot of monsters in it a lot of vampires and like werewolves uh ghosts so that's a little bit more fun um i love all that stuff that's perfect yeah so that's, I, i'm curious to see how people are going to respond to it because i'm a very you know and as writers you expect that we're going to change over time but i'm a very different writer today so and that those stories I, I think those are just i think of them like candy like those are like halloween <laughs> candy you want to read then those are just like you know quirky fun horror stories so that'll be out in january awesome awesome well i will definitely get a copy of that now when is the shoemaker's magician coming out is that it comes out on valentine's day which is perfect because the point <laughs> of the story is to break people's hearts so i'm hoping that people cry i think i think <laughs> with a the Children of Chicago, my goal was to have people throw the book across the room, like, what the hell? Uh, I, I did, a lot of people did do that, which is good. Um, but The Shoemaker's Magician, um, you know, deals with uh, a mother's love for her child. And so it's a very different type of book. It still has all things Chicago, um, but I, it's more emotional. So I'm curious how people are going to respond. So the... the advanced reader copies will be out pretty soon. So I'm going to be hiding as soon as people start reading that. If you want to consider a small little person like myself, I would love an advanced reader copy of this. Oh, I would love to send one to you, especially I want, I want your wife to read it. Cause I'm curious for her to read about, um, I'd like her to read about all the, the movie palaces that I talk about and the horror host I mentioned in there. I would, <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. I, I promise if you send me one, I will let her, uh, she will read it also. And we will, I, oh. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. You're going to get one. Absolutely. Um, so what else do you do? You have you mentioned having several books coming out. So what else do you have coming out coming up? Or I think I, I said a, that correctly. <laughs> yeah. Crime Scene comes out this week. That's um, that's a poetry. Well, a narrative told in verse. So a poetry well, a story told through poems. And it's a crime story. And it's essentially my. After I wrote Into the Forest and all the way through, I still had a lot of things that I was just kind of processing. And I feel like I needed to say goodbye to all of that. And that's what crime scene is. Crime scene is just like my exploration on crime and how it just becomes, how it's never ending. How there's always something. There's another case. There's another body. There's another mystery to solve and i really wanted to talk about that like this unending never ending like anguish of trying to capture catch someone that's done something awful so that comes out this thursday from raw dog screaming press so i'm excited and i'll be at merrimack book festival this weekend i don't have a book launch or anything but i will be at merrimack and then now i think i should have copies there. i haven't even seen a copy of the book but oh, wow. uh yeah, so I'm excited. 
Awesome. Um, do you feel like that this is kind of like a swan song for you? I mean, given your your love-hate kind of relationship with true crime and all that, do you feel like this is kind of a swan song or do you feel like you might have, you know, get into it again at some point in the future? Uh, I don't know. I feel like it might be, but I might have another collection, poetry collection out end of 2023. And I'm that's still being worked on. Um, I think for now it's my swan song with crime, <laughs> with 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 the with the with true crime. Um, just because, especially as a artist, I like to be able to evolve and almost like with Loteria, right? With my mm-hmm. Latin American folklore stories, I did I did all that in 2010. I, I I explored that. That was fun. But now I'm exploring other things like history and our impact of history and how we continue to operate even though we have these things hanging over us and I feel like I covered why are my dogs barking I hope you don't hear my dogs barking (laughs) Um, um, and so I'm texting my husband like get the dogs (laughs) Uh, uh, so for now I think I'm kind of done with true crime Uh, it would be kind of hard to pull me back I'm still a crime writer um, so I will write fictional crime but in terms of reflecting on a true case i'm i'm a little hesitant to do that right now i i understand that completely um so i guess uh before we wrap up um where do you want uh where can people find you online how come i am yeah i promise i will update my website i've been behind it's c-i-n-a-p-e-l-a-y-o.com sina palayo Com. My name is Cynthia, but my friends, my nickname is Sina. So my friends and family, um, people in the writing community, that's what they call I publish by Cynthia. They're all my friends. Everyone, like my, you know, that's my, that's my nickname. So SinaPalayo.com. I am on Twitter, uh, Sina Palayo. I'm kind of active on Twitter. I'm always like chatting about something. I'm also on Instagram, Sina Palayo author. Um, but yeah, so, you know, give me a follow. Uh, I have like again, uh, crime scene comes out this month, October, Loteria in January, the Shoemaker's Magician in February, perhaps another poetry collection, end of 2023, and maybe some things else. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have a couple other things coming up soon, but I can't say yet. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. We'll keep it. We'll keep it under wraps for now. Um, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's fun. I'm- I wasn't able to connect my headphones, so hopefully you you don't hear me all staticky. No, I think you came through. I think you came through terrifically. Um, Thank you so much, too, for for staying up after that that marathon session of editing last night. That's... I'm just going to jump back into it. I mean, it never ends, but it's okay. So I was going to tell you to get some sleep, but I guess you're not going to do that just yet, so... Try a little bit more, and then hopefully I'll get a good nap in later. Well, sounds very good. Thank you so much for meeting us today, Sina. We've very much enjoyed talking to you. I can't wait to look for these books. Um, we will help share and, you know, like we do with our authors, we want to support you and celebrate you on, on social media. Um, and is there is there anything before we leave that you want to say out to, to our listeners or to anybody else's final message? Thank you, thank you all. And um, thank you to the listeners for, for supporting you all. This is great. I appreciate awesome. it. Well, thank you very much. It's wonderful talking to you. Everybody, this has been an interview with Sina Palayo. Uh, This is Jeremy. Um, And Trevor has abandoned us because he had the audacity to get sick. I'm going to hang this over his head because you stayed up all night. And we're still able to get on. So I'm going to hang this over his head for not being here. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, everyone. 